Tim Weisberg here along with science advisor Matt Moniz here to talk about the paranormal as we are each and every Saturday night. And tonight we're going to be talking about demonic possession. A little bit later on we're going to be joined by Troy Taylor. He's going to join us to talk about a new documentary airing on Discovery Plus about the exorcism of Roland Doe. It's the case that inspired the movie The Exorcist. It is one of the most intriguing cases of demonic possession you'll ever hear about. So he'll be joining us coming up uh, at about 10.30, and uh, he'll be with us for about a half an hour or so to talk about that. Maybe we can touch upon some of his other work as well. We've wanted to have Troy on the program for a long time now uh, because he is one of the foremost, uh, you know, one of the most prolific writers about paranormal topics, uh, you know, especially ghost topics. Yeah, And he, you know, we tried for years to get him, but he is a very busy guy. He's always doing tour, ghost tours and events and everything. So Saturday nights are usually not a good night for him. But we've been lucky enough to to get him for tonight's program. So pretty excited to good score. have good him at score. least for a little while. And then uh, a little bit later on in the program, we're going to talk about a situation that's been unfolding in the paranormal world over the last couple of weeks. Uh, a friend of ours, uh, he's an author, Richard Estep. You probably have read some of his books. He's going through a situation where his, you know, plagiarism is a problem in the paranormal. We know that that is, no. that is, you know, something that is, um, I won't say rampant, but it certainly pops its head up every, you know, every year there's a couple of cases where someone says, you know, that story got ripped off from me or I did all the research into that and somebody else put it into their book without crediting me. You know, those kind of things happen. But it seems like the last few years we've had some major cases of it. Uh, last year we had Zach Bagans putting out the what was it, uh, Ghost Hunting for Dummies or yeah, something like that. I think I think it was that one. You know, the, I don't I get all those series confused, but I'm pretty sure it was that one. And the well, Balsano had already done you know ghost hunting for. Uh, well, that was picture yourself ghost hunting. Yeah, yeah, that's that's a whole different series that I don't even think that exists anymore. Yeah, but the um. This one was, you know, Zach wrote it with a co-author, which means the co-author wrote it. And Zach was taking the brunt of the uh, blame because uh, large portions of the book were lifted from other people, uh, I guess, you know, from pretty much word for word, and they weren't being credited. So what happened there was that they said that there was going to be uh, a second edition where they would properly cite those authors, so the the it was it was a it was a mix up I guess, where you know they meant to cite them but they didn't, so they would take care of that in the second edition, but of course here we are like a year later, shouldn't there hasn't have been a been, second printing. Shouldn't it have been the um, editor and well, printers? Only, only if you know that it was plagiarized to begin with. Oh. So the way it's going to go is you write the book. You submit it to the publisher. Not all publishers that work in the paranormal genre have editors. So, like, you have to keep that in mind. There's one particular publishing company where you have to deliver to them the title completely edited. Because they're just going to take whatever you send them, publish it. Oh, okay. So, but this was not a paranormal publisher. This being, you know, whatever for dummies, you know, the the, the for dummies company. They, They have editors. So, they had people that went through it, but they don't know that it's... Something that was lifted from somebody else. They're just looking for grammar. And, and, 
and but they do they do kind of because what happens is they get into uh, your style of writing. So this happens to me. I'm an editor, so I can tell somebody's style of writing, and the minute I read something that doesn't sound like their style of writing, it sticks out like a sore thumb. But if you've taken big chunks of the book and submitted it, then it feels like mm. you know that's what your what your writing style is. So for whoever was editing that book, they probably were reading so much in that style that they just thought that that's how the writer wrote. Uh, and then the other part of it too is, you know, like what are they going to do to kind of prove it? Uh, they, it, it's different if it's an online article. So an online article, you can take the text and you can pop it into Google and have it search and see if it comes up as being somebody else's words in another article. You can't do that if it's from a book. So unless you can go back to the source material and compare it side by side, it's hard to really prove. So it's really on the authors. And they make them sign all kinds of stuff. Yeah. Uh, yeah. I, you, you don't you don't have to fill in when I cough. <laughs> don't feel like you have to. It's going to happen a lot. Okay. Uh, I think last night I, I, I talked about 30 total seconds on Midnight Society. The rest <laughs> of the time I was just coughing. Um, but the... And I don't have COVID, so anybody that's thinking that the um, the, the yeah. editors that are you know working on that are taking them at their word that they have submitted this in good faith, and I you know I I, I don't know I don't even know off the top of my head who the co-author of that book was, and I don't know who the you know like what their intention was, what they told them, but I would think that you know. If you've taken large chunks of the book like that and not cited any of it, it wasn't a mistake. I'm not accusing anybody of anything, and I'm not accusing anybody of a crime because, believe it or not, plagiarism is not a crime. So it's, it's, it's wrong, but there's no legal definition of it. You can't, you can't be arrested for plagiarism. You, can't, you can be sued for sued plagiarism, for, but it's, yeah, a civil, then, yeah, yeah. it's a civil case. So it's not a crime. So I'm not accusing anybody of a crime. Um, but the problem is, you know, the other part of that is they could have said, well, I, I meant to do, you know, footnotes and just forgot to do them. If that's what they say, it's, it's believable. But then again, you would think you'd be making those notations rather than have to go through the book when you're done with the final edit and say, oh, I have to go make these notations. But anyway, that was that case last year, and it drew, it drew a lot of attention. Now this new case is a little bit different from my understanding, and I asked Richard if he could come on, but he has a, you know, a real job, and, uh, and he works, I think, Saturday night, so he couldn't join us. So it is... Um, <coughs> excuse me. Uh, it is more of a case in this instance of they took the whole book, like cover and all, and just put their name on it. What? Yeah. So that's a that's a problem. You don't want to have people. You could almost call it larceny. I mean, I would. The the and the problem is, is he submitted to Amazon. What's going on? And they haven't rectified it yet. Like that should be instantaneous. If you were saying that your book was stolen. And that you can prove that it was, they should pull down those books, yours included, until, until they can prove that. Yeah. So, 
I mean, I, I mean, I'd, I'd be willing to lose sales of my book for a week or two if that's what it took for that for you know to, to solve the problem. Now I know in the past Chris Balzano has been ripped off. He was not cited in books where people were using his information. Uh, and it was a person who was, you know, one of the signs that somebody is probably not writing everything themselves is when they put out, you know, 15 books a year. That's usually a sign. You know, unless they're, you know, like Tom D'Agostino, he just sat yeah. in front of his computer and wrote for, you know, 15 hours a day. Like, okay, that guy's writing his books. But the other part of it is... He actually doesn't sit in front of his computer. Well, what does he use, a typewriter still? No. Because I was going to say... I've, I've sat there, as you know, Tom and I are pretty good friends, and I've gone over his house num numerous times. He actually writes on paper well, then with I would, a quill pen. I, would, I kid you not. I would fire him if I was his publisher. Uh, like, you're not giving me stacks of well, handwritten paper. Well, then types it. Okay. <laughs> All right, as long as the publisher is yeah, getting, the, you know, a but file. But he actually writes out his books on paper with a quill pen... She transcribes them, and that's how they're submitted. That's going to be a pain in the ass. That well, I've seen him write. He can, he he can scroll like, pretty dip, quickly. Right, dip right, dip right, dip yep. right. Uh, but, but yeah, but that that you know, that's a good sign usually. I mean, it's it's a different story. You know, like um, Jeff Belanger has put out multiple books in a year before. Sam Baltrusis has put out multiple books in a year. That's because you're always working on those, and you're, you're doing the work for five books at once. So you're collecting it and you're like, okay, that's going over here. That's going over there. going to write this. And then that goes over there. You know, some people's mind works that way. Stephen King, you know, he works that way sometimes where he's doing bits and pieces of certain stories. Yeah. But, you know, there's just, and the other thing is like if, and I don't, I don't mean to sound obnoxious about this, but if nobody knows who you are in this world, in the paranormal world, and you suddenly come out with a book. That's kind of a little bit of a red flag for people because they say, well, where were you getting this research if we've never come across you before? So were you doing your own research or were you just reading our books and taking our stories, which is what happened in the case of, of Chris? Well, another way of determining that is if, if, say, they're writing about Lizzie's. We know the owners very well. It's like, has this person been here asking questions you know things like that and you tr do your due diligence all of a sudden this person had to have come up with this some out of somewhere so yeah right not i don't want to get into all the you know i don't want to uh spill the tea as the kids say today but you know we know of books that have been written where they talk about people that have gone and had experiences and those people are us yeah uh you know <laughs> hey that story you or familiar. i or andy yeah. or stephanie and we're like, but we never talked to this person about this story. Where are they getting this from? You know, so it's like you, you've got to be really, really careful and really on the ball. If somebody wanted to write about stuff that I put out there, like, I don't care. Hmm. Just don't take my words. If you want to say, oh, uh, you know, Tim Weisberg from Spooky South Coast said this or had this happen, like, that's fine. But just, you know, you don't have to reach out to me for that. It'd be nice to know. Yeah. But you don't have to, like, reach out for me for that. But if you're going to use my words, then I want to be cited. And, you know, they've all, everybody's gone through it. Jeff's gone through it. You know, Jeff was the one that um, in the early days of, you know, me being a, a, an editor, 
he's somebody I would lean on for advice and information and say, well, when is it plagiarism? You know, because it, it is, it's, it's not clearly defined. Plagiarism is very much a feels like kind of thing. So you can't, you, you know, you can't define. So for example, everybody thinks that if you just cite somebody that you're okay. So that if you want to write a book about ghosts of the South Coast yourself and you want to cite my book, you would say, you know, according to Tim Weisberg in his book, Ghosts of the South Coast, and then you can quote yeah, a large gonna, chunk. Yeah. But there's like a word limit to that, even though there is no defined word limit. It's like if you start to get over like 250 words, stop, because now you're just reprinting my book. So it's a, and that's kind yeah, of a paragraph or two is making a site. Yeah. And even yeah. that's a little much in our, in our daily writing here, you know, I tell everybody the basic rule of thumb is if you're pulling, you know, at least half of your word count is coming from other sources, that's not your article. So like use that as your, your what about rule of thumb. their quotes from people in a particular thing. Quotes within another work. No, well, just quotes from, say, the witnesses, you know, the witnesses. If you story. got them on your own independently, it's okay. If you're taking them from another source, it's not okay. It's okay to use them and cite them, but not in, you know, not in large chunks. You have to be judicious in what it is that you use. Yeah, I didn't know where the line stops. If it was, so if it was a, you know, if it was a matter of there's one article where, there's 15 quotes from somebody and you want to incorporate those 15 quotes, you know, then it can kind of become a little bit of a, of a real kind of a twisty area because even if you're spreading them out, the person that wrote that original article and got those 15 quotes is the one who did the work of getting those 15 quotes. So you're really just taking their work. So it's a, like I said, it's a very, very weird thing. That's why it's always better to just do your own work if you can. So Leanne's been quoted in 500 books about the Lizzie Borden house. But if you're going to write a book that includes something about the Lizzie Borden house, call her. Yeah. You know, she's more than happy to talk to you about it. And also, then you know that everything is fresh and new. But we live in a society now where people think that they can write books because they write um they write articles and they think that it's the same thing and it's not. A book is not a article on steroids. It's not, you know, 30 articles put together into a book unless you write it that way. You know, it's like a collection of my articles, but it's not the same thing. And people who are writing articles, I see it all the time, are plagiarizing things right and left. They just don't know it because they don't know any better. And in the paranormal world, there's there's not a lot of information out there in certain cases. So you have to get those from the original source material, you know. And the idea is, here's here's the, the big question you got to ask yourself. If Matt Moniz already wrote a book about UFOs in Massachusetts, why do I need to write a book about UFOs in Massachusetts? Like, that's where the problem lies, is because people are just trying to rehash the same story, the same ideas that other people have put out books on. So if you wanted to say, uh, you know, Massachusetts UFO sightings from, you know, 2010 to 2020, because you wrote your book in 2010, 
that's a different story. If you wanted to say, you know, UFOs of New England and Massachusetts is just part of it, you know, that's a different thing. But I don't understand this desire that people have to write the same book that somebody else has written, especially when they don't have anything new as a result of it. It's like, well, I'm just going to take it and put it in my own words. Okay, but that person already wrote it. I wouldn't have written Ghost of the South Coast if somebody else wrote it first. But then again, you got to go back to where, well, I understand what you're trying to say, but how many people have rewritten about the same crime? How many people people have rewritten over and over again about the assassination of JFK? Or But they, or, they'll write about it with different theories and different approaches to it. Uh, so, or like somebody might say, I'm going to take all of them together and put them into, you know, one book and kind of rank the likelihood of each one or things like that. Like that's, it's the same thing with TV shows, you know, with these paranormal TV shows. What's different? What makes you stand out? What makes you not just be a knockoff of something else? And as you can see with the TV shows, the more of them come out. Yep the harder it is to have that differentiation, to have that thing that makes you unique and makes you stand out. I mean, that's why, you know, having Troy Taylor on tonight, he's somebody who, uh, you know, has spent years researching these these books before he even starts writing them. So he's the guy that everybody's using as the source material when they're going and looking into these cases. The other problem is when you have um, people writing the same book over and over again, or, you know, covering the same things, it creates instant animosity because now you, you've you got two competing books. So if you decided to write, you know, I wrote Ghosts of the South Coast. If you decided to write a book called South Coast Ghosts and it had, you know, all the same stories that I wrote, you know, the, you can understand why somebody would be upset about that. Right. It it's makes sense. Like you, you really didn't bring anything new to the table. Uh, and, and I'm all for, like, keeping these stories alive but also like you you don't need to rehash things you know um ed Lodi is an author in this area edward Lodi. yep and he got criticized from a lot of people because like most of the stuff that's in his books are nothing that he's actually gone out and experienced or collected himself he just finds old historical books and then rewrites those stories in his books and so people have criticized him and said, well, he's really just kind of plagiarizing those older books. But that's not necessarily what he's doing because he's saying right out, like, what I'm doing is I'm taking these, by the way, in the public domain books, and I am bringing these stories back because these books are out of print, because nobody is putting these books back out. Nobody has access to them. So he's getting this stuff that is you know, from the 1600s, 1700s, and he's bringing it back so that you can walk into, you know, a news break and buy it off the shelf or Barnes & Noble and buy it off the shelf. And so that's a that's a completely different thing. You know, that is, um, I'm blanking on the word for what it is, but, you know, you're, you're basically just reprinting these stories to keep them, keep them going. But look at how much of, you know, the New England Ghost Files, Charles Chuck Robinson's book, yep. So much of everything that we do in this area relates back to the stories that were told in that book. And so you it's not uncommon then when we talk about it, we say, well, as Charles Shark Robinson wrote in the New England Ghost Files, because anybody in this area knows that that's where it came from. But then there's also some degree, too, of those legends eventually become part of the 
the collective storytelling of the area. So, like the old Shadowlands. And well, the Shadowlands had lots of problems. Yeah. <laughs> the the biggest problem was that nobody ever bothered to call any of those places to see if yeah. you know it was okay for people to go there. So it was basically just a, a you know a giant uh, a giant trespassing list. Yeah. But the you know we'll we'll talk more about this coming up a little bit later on and and we'll take your calls out there too. I mean I'd be interested to see what the paranormal audience thinks about this, how much they think about the need for you know differentiation in these stories. Uh, do they want to see it stay with, you know, one particular author? I mean, you're going to write compilation books. Compilations are going to happen. But I'm talking about when people are directly doing the same thing that somebody else has already done. You know, I think, and certainly it's a completely different story when it's like what's, what Richard is going through, where it's a direct copying of his book. I mean, yeah. if anybody ever did that to me, first of all, I'd... People. Question: I'd question why they would do that to begin with. Like, you could have probably written a better book than I did. But um, the other part of it is, you know, a book is like your child. So somebody plagiarizing your book is like somebody kidnapping your child. But not only kidnapping your child, but renaming them and completely taking them as their own. Like, that's a that's that's a that's a horrible thing. And that actually does happen in some cases there have been cases well the, that, that yeah. the I, I forget his last name but the the i know my first name is steven, steven case yeah you know that that kid you know that poor kid got a completely different name and had to have a completely different life and all of that so but that's you know that's what it's like it's like you're having your child ripped away from you but then also you know now it's no longer your child it's it's this person's child with this name and you know even maybe even a completely different personality. So, but uh, we'll, we'll get into a lot of that. I mean, maybe I'm just passionate about it because I am a writer and because I, you know, work in that world. But I think that it's a much bigger problem than people realize that it is. They, they think when they go and they buy a, you know, a ghost book off the shelf, they're helping to support, you know, the ghost world. So it's just like, oh, I, you know, I saw this book about, you know, paranormal stories of New England, and I wanted to get it, and, um, you know, I'm interested in reading about those, so, you know, hey, I just grabbed it. But what you don't realize is that sometimes you're you're getting the book that is the stolen version of somebody else's book. And I, I, I don't know how often it happens in other genres of writing. Uh, you know, you had mentioned the true crime genre. I'm sure that there are a lot of true crime stories that get told again and again and again. Uh, but also, I, I don't know if those writers necessarily just rip each other off word for word. You know, I think it's just more of a matter of they're all using the same source material. Mm. And so, all right, so for example, you know, I work here during the day and sometimes I write news. I've worked in the newsroom in the past. If the New Bedford Police Department puts out a press release, yeah, can you hear my... Anyway, yeah, yeah. so if, if the New Bedford Police Department puts out a press release, they send it to us, they send it to the Standard Times, they send it to other media outlets. Those other media outlets, all of them, are going to report the same thing that we're reporting. Now, we're going to take that press release and rewrite it, and so are they. But So we're all going to have the same source material. There'll just be a little different nuances in the way that that material is being presented. Uh, so that's kind of what happens with you know, true crime cases is that 
you've got everybody going back to the same police files, the same uh, court documents, the same you know yeah. interview tapes that might be out there. And so you're going to have a lot of that similarity. And, and it probably happens in, in other things too, you know, especially like scientific writing. I'm yeah. sure that that, no, that, that happens. The amount of plagiarism that's accused in science writing. Oh my God. I think that's probably the highest proliferation of plagiarism. But the, you know, the, 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 the problem is, is you're dealing with experimentation that not everybody's going to do. So if somebody, if somebody does an experiment, and I'm just going to use an experiment as the terminology, uh, uh, but if okay, but if somebody does a, you know, if if somebody's doing certain research, yeah, um, then everybody else in the community is going to use their research. So it's not like, um. It's not like your lab does that, and then my lab's going to do it before we write about it to make sure that it's the same thing. We're going to take what your lab did and, right. and, and, and add it to our work. It's called peer review, but yeah. Well, but I mean in terms of when you're putting out your own right, your own written version of whatever. But there are plenty of people that take other people's papers and just <coughs> rewrite them in a slightly different manner, but it's still the same stuff, you know, a, it's hard to explain, but it, it happens quite frequently but in, in the science community. In in that regard, is there is there any kind of formal procedure that's supposed to be followed outside of... Oh, the, yeah, there's the several different things that can be done. It all depends upon whether it's independent, if it's, you know, university-related, if it's, you know, uh, a, a peer paper done by, you know... Uh, corporation there there are a number of different arenas that p publications are made in science some people you know are very stringent others are just trying to get information out and you know in a lot of the science industry it's all about you know have you published you know, you know a paper about this or that in in research and a lot of cases, people, you know, puff themselves up by taking other people's papers and rewriting them with their own little add to it. You know, the, in other words, you're not really saying anything else. You're just, you know, hey, uh, I, I saw that Bob found that two plus two is four and I concur with him. Well, oh, yeah. So you publish saying that, yeah, the you other, saw the obvious, too. The other issue, too, is I'm sure in science it's a little bit different because everybody follows you know, standard operating procedures and things. <laughs> you would um, think. But, but, you know, but I'm, I'm sure they're kind of used to following formats. Yeah. So that, you know, they probably, when they're writing and citing, they're probably citing the same way. In, you know, regular general writing, we have, you know, parenthetical citations. Yeah. Uh, we have footnotes. No, yeah. uh, we have index citations. And so there's different ways of doing it. And everybody has the way that they want to do it. Listen, I hate footnotes. Like I don't like I don't like them, even when I'm reading. Like I certainly don't like writing with them, but I don't even like reading them. I don't like taking my eye down to the bottom of the page and then coming back up and all of that. Um, parenthetical document. Part of my daily routine. It's okay if it's like more information. Yeah. Well, but like, that's, yeah. I don't want to like, and I really hate when it's like I have to drop my eyes down and I realize it's just a citation and not more information. So. Uh, you know, I'm a parentheses guy, but I don't even like parenthetical citation. You know, I, I like to have, if I have to cite, that's how I'm going to do it. And when I wrote Ghosts of the South Coast, they let me do 
you know, source material citation at the end. So even I would I would quote and I would do parenthetical, but then I would just have a list of sources at the end. And I don't I don't know I don't think we had to do any of that for haunted objects because we collected those stories on our own pretty much. Uh, but the you know just as a writer, it is it's it's a pain, but it's got to be done. So you want to do it in the way that it's going to be easiest for you and less disruptive for the reader. Um, it's a little bit harder in you know I, I'll use the term blog writing. I, as much as I hate calling things blogs, a blog to me is when somebody writes their personal feelings about something. You know, a blog is when uh, a blog is a live journal. A blog is you going home and writing about, here's what I think about, you know, uh, these cases that I've looked at. And here's what I think about this experience. To me, the minute you start like bringing in facts and everything, you get to kind of elevate yourself up out of the blog title. But we we can talk about that coming up uh, in a little while because we do have our guest on the phone, one of the most pro prolific writers in the paranormal world, uh, and he is, he is the author of The Devil Came to St. Louis, which is a big part of uh, this new Discovery Plus documentary, The Shock Doc, that has uh, de debuted yesterday, actually, and I had the chance to watch it this afternoon. Troy Taylor is on the line with us. Good evening, Troy. How are you? Hey, man. How are you? Doing very well. Great to talk uh, with you, finally. Yeah, yeah, I know it. I'm sorry, and I... You know, we had a big event this weekend, and I said, you know what? I have put Tim off for so long that <laughs> I have to, I've got to call him tonight. So, well, yeah, listen, it's going good. Never apologize for being busy on a Saturday night, <laughs> especially with, you know, the way the world is now. If you, yeah, if no you can still right? be, if you're still bringing people out there with an interest in the paranormal at a time like this, like just keep that going. That's the best, <laughs> that's the best thing. So this shock doc that they, that debuted, you know, this is the third one now, and each one I've been pretty impressed with, but this one I think is probably the most impressive in terms of the research that went into this and all of the information for a case that I thought for years there was very little known about, uh, but, you know, you looked into this for your book. You're one of the foremost experts on this case. I had no idea it was as rich in detail. How did we get all this information about the Roland Doe case? I've been working on this, honestly, for almost 25 years. Um, it was just something that appealed to me, and I wanted to do something with it. Of all the books I've written, this is the only one that I've done, like, three editions of. I'm sure there'll be a fourth one later. Uh, believe it or not, more information comes along at different times. And some of the times, the oddest kind of ways. Um, you, you've watched the documentary, so you know that uh, there's an interview with um, Greg Holowinski, who was a, an Alexian monk there toward the end. That just came out of the blue. I thought I had interviewed every single person who was still alive who had actually been part of the exorcism. And then out of the blue, I got this message from... Uh, his family, and they said that, you know, uh, Brother Greg was, you know, he was in his 80s. Uh, he, was, he had cancer and didn't think he had long to live and wanted to tell his story. So I went up to uh, Milwaukee to visit him. He was retired, you know, living in a retirement home for Alexian monks and sat down with him to listen to what he had to say. And, I mean, 
you know, in the documentary, what comes across is, is really compelling. But in person, honestly, I mean, it, it gave me chills. Um, he just, you know, you know, I, I spent so much time on this and my, my, my idea behind it, my way of thinking was always, listen, present the evidence you've got, let people decide for themselves what they want to believe. Um, whether they want to believe it was a demon, if they want to believe it was, you know, whatever. This is the evidence. Give it to them. So I've always tried to kind of keep a step back from this and not get too personally involved, which is always funny to my friends who say, dude, you've been doing this for 25 years. I think you're personally involved, <laughs> you know, but right. I, uh, yeah. And so, you know, when he's sitting there across from me and, and I talked to other people who were involved in the exorcism. And all of them would kind of hem-haw around and say, you know, I don't know. I'm not really qualified. Father Bowdern thought it was real, but I don't know. So here's a guy sitting across from me who's in his 80s, who's been doing this his whole life. He has been in service to other people. He's got no reason to lie. He's going to die. He knows he's going to die and wants to tell his story. And he looks at me and says, listen, I was in the room. I was, you know, holding him down on the bed. That was my job because, you know, uh, people who are going through exorcism or demonic possessions, they, you know, can become violent. They can thrash about. So my job was to hold him down. And this boy levitated 12 inches off the bed. And it wasn't, you know, he didn't say it to me where he said it seemed like or it looked like. I mean, he said to me straight out, this boy levitated off the bed, and anybody who came into that room would have to be crazy if they didn't realize that the devil was in this room. And honestly, I mean, seriously, and I've been doing this for a long time, but this gave me chills. And for the first time, I really looked at it and thought, maybe I needed to rethink what I thought was going on in this story, because I've always believed that something happened. I just don't know what it is. You know, and um, yeah, I mean, so new stuff does come up and it comes from very surprising sources. So, you know, 70 some years later, I just keep finding new things. And it's 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 really it's fascinating. It's a really great story. And it is, um, you know, a, a personal life of someone who went through something. And, um, you know, he passed away last year, um, the real Roland Doe. Um, and he was 85 years old. He'd lived a full life. You know, he really didn't remember the, you know, details of what happened during the exorcism. So it was, um, you know, he was a fascinating guy to talk to because he really didn't have a lot to say, uh, which kind of made his story even more believable uh, because he didn't remember the specific details of what was going on during the exorcism? He remembered going to St. Louis. He remembered being around his family. He remembered some of the people and the places he went. But he told me that he felt like that he was, when he'd hear stories of what happened, that it felt like it was someone else's life. And um, which actually made me believe his story more because if he told me, oh, yeah, I remember this, and, you know, I probably would have been a little more skeptical. So it's amazing how things just keep coming up. Right. So just in case anybody listening has not heard the story of Roland Doe, can you give us just a, a quick thumbnail sketch of the case? Sure. Absolutely. Um, this was a 13-year-old boy who lived in Cottage City, Maryland. It's a suburb of Washington, D.C., and began to experience odd things 
in his home. Uh, his family was experiencing it with him. Uh, scratching sounds, banging sounds, the bed moving. Soon things got worse. Roland started to go into um, what I guess you would call a trance, where he you know, seemed to be outside his body. Uh, he would um, twist around, contort, uh, have convulsions, what seemed to be like seizures. And this was going on on a regular basis. And it got worse and worse as the days went by. Family went looking for help um, with their Lutheran minister, uh, then with the Catholic Church. And as things got worse, they decided that they would go home to St. Louis. That's where uh, Roland's parents were from. That's where they met. That's where they married. And they still had all their family in St. Louis. And they thought that perhaps going back home would, you know, make things better. So they moved halfway across the country in 1949, which is not something that most people did in those days, uh, which is, for me, real evidence that they knew something drastic was going on in their lives. So they went to St. Louis thinking things would get better. They didn't. Uh, the aunt and uncle that they were staying with, their uh, Roland's cousin, contacted um, or went to talk to her advisor at St. Louis University, who was a Jesuit priest, he agreed to come out and pray with the family. And then when he came out, he got a taste of the weird things that were happening, objects moving around, doors opening and closing, banging, the bed shaking, and Roland seeming to be um, under the influence of some sort of supernatural power. And one thing led to another. More priests became involved. Soon they were given permission to perform an exorcism on him. It started in March of 1949 and lasted for about six weeks. Um, eventually, they went from the house where the aunt and uncle lived to a rectory of a church on the St. Louis University campus, and eventually to the Alexian Brothers Hospital, which is where things ended up. They took Roland to a the, the, the mental ward there, actually, where he could be restrained because he was starting to become so violent during the uh, what they believed to be a demonic possession. Eventually, Holy Week at the end of April, um, he was released from the demon that they believed was, you know, had a grip on him, and then he went on to live a normal life. But it's very well documented because um, one of the priests involved kept a diary of what happened in, in the, in, during the entire possession, first getting some of the information from the family, and then later what he was observing every single day. Uh, because he'd come into this, you know, in 1949, there were, as you can imagine, no how-to books on how to perform an exorcism. So he thought, but yeah, right? No, no exorcism for dummies back then. So <laughs> right. he thought that maybe if he kept this diary, it would help out future generations of priests. And then not knowing that the church would want to keep everything a secret when it was over. So the diaries just sort of, um, you know, there were about a dozen copies of them printed, and they went into people's filing cabinets and, you know, hidden away in places. But there was one diary that ended up in a drawer at the Alexian Brothers Hospital that was found in 1978 when they were tearing down the wing of the hospital, which is how it went public. But even before that, Back in 1949, there was a, uh, a seminary student at Georgetown University in D.C., and um, he'd heard that there had been an exorcism that had taken place in St. Louis and was very curious about it. And he heard there was a diary. 
So he went to one of his advisors, he was studying to be a Jesuit priest, went to one of his advisors and asked if he could see this diary that it's supposed to be kept. No, 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 I'm sorry, we can't give you that. Later, he got his hands on it and read about it and read what was in the diary, um, you know, step by step of everything that happened. Um, but this, uh, this Jesuit seminary student eventually dropped out and became a writer. Uh, William Peter Blatty was his name. And using that diary and the stories that he'd heard and the fact that he was able to talk to Father Bowdern, he put together a book called The Exorcist, which, of course, went on to become a movie. So this story is the reason that The Exorcist, the film, exists. And um, believe it or not, a lot of the stuff, I mean, was dramatized, don't get me wrong, but a lot of the stuff that you see in the movie actually happened in real life, at least according to all the eyewitness accounts. Well, but the other part of it, too, is, you know, in the movie, The Exorcist, as, as intense as the activity may be, it is a relatively short duration of, uh, at yeah. least as, as far as I can tell, they don't really give you an idea of the passage of time too much, but it's a short duration event, whereas opposed to, you know, Roland Doe going through, like you said, six weeks and sometimes weeks. going through, you know, five or six uh, exorcisms, uh, you know, in the course of a week. I mean, that's, that's, that's. That's a battle right there. It's brutal. It is. And, you know, that's what I use for people who, you know, who want to argue that the whole thing was a hoax. And I'm, I'm thinking, you know, I tell them, I said, listen, this is a 13-year-old kid. not a very sophisticated kid. And even if he'd started this thing out as just a way to get attention, why in the world would you keep this going? I mean, just, just on the idea that you are every single night having priests come and pray over you and scream at you every night. And it went on for six weeks, man. I mean, it started in January in his home. He didn't make it to St. Louis until March. The, the actual exorcism began around March 17th, didn't end until the end of April. I mean, that's a long way to go for a practical joke or just to get a little attention. So we need to erase that whole idea of that it was some kind of fake a hoax or a setup of some kind. Um, you can believe in demons or not believe in demons, but really, I think it's obvious that something happened in this case. And I think that's, that's, that's kind of what I tried to bring to this documentary is, you know, the idea that, you know, there was something going on. You can judge for yourself what you want it to be, but here are the facts. This is what happened. I talked to the people who were there. I mean, several of the People who were still alive. I mean, I started, you know, researching this case in the late 90s, and there were still several people still alive. Not only Roland, but, but William Halloran, um, the, um, the Jesuit student who'd come in. You know, they picked this guy just because he was a, a big guy. He'd been a football player and a, and a boxer. They brought him in because they, had, they needed somebody to hold Roland onto the bed, not knowing that, you know, eventually, if he, of course, he would be a Jesuit priest himself and be able to tell his stories. You know, relator Brother Greg that I met, I mean, it's, it really is an amazing story. Um, no matter what kind of faith you have, no matter what religion you believe in, there's something, you know, really compelling about the story, even if you just say it's about good versus evil. You know, it's a great story. And um, it's, a, it's, it's a story that I think really has, well, obviously it has a lasting impact. We're still talking about it. You know, it's been 72 years later. We're still talking about the story. Right. And so, but you know. Here's what stands out to me about it, Troy, is if, if there wasn't 
you know, real truth to, to what you've written about and what's in the documentary, if there wasn't real truth behind that, somebody would have come forward and said, you know, all these details that people have been talking about aren't true. I was there. This didn't happen. You know, right. but no, as far as I can tell, nobody has ever tried to discredit any no. of the parts of the, of the story no. that's come out. No, I've talked to a few people who um, were, you know, their parents knew uh, Roland when he was in school. And, you know, all of these stories that they tell usually have to do with the fact that he had been a troubled child, had had, you know, some issues that now today we would look at and call, you know, ADHD, that kind of stuff. But that's the worst that you can ever find about the family or anything. I mean, I've... I've known the identity of the family since I started researching this case. I mean, I know that I know this kid's name. I know the family's name. So, I mean, I was able to talk to people who knew the family and they never had anything bad to say. They would just always say that, you know, he was very hyper and things before this all started. So people were skeptical when it began, people who knew him who lived in the neighborhood. But, you know, those people who were skeptical, who, you know, lived in Maryland, none of them really knew what happened in St. Louis. Once, once this thing began to progress, because, you know, any kind of research that you do into, you know, exorcisms and possessions, you find that things will increase as they go. They, they, they go step by step. And they were all there for some of the early stuff, and they might be skeptical about the fact that he was, you know, kind of a troubled child, but no one can really speak to what happened in St. Louis, except for the people that was there. And that was something that really impressed me about Brother Greg when I interviewed him was that, you know, he he was there. He saw these things. I mean, I wasn't there, so I can't speak with really any authority other than what I've learned from other people I've interviewed and documents that I've dug up. Well, that's, you know, I'm looking at it secondhand. That's why I spent so much time trying to interview people who were actually there. But there's just no one left now. Right. But it's still funny the way that things still keep turning up. Um, I've been given some letters that were written by uh, Father Bowdern, who was in charge of the exorcism, stuff I didn't have access to before. And so it's always interesting to see what comes up. But the people who were there truly believed it was a demonic possession. And it's, oh man, it's, hard, for, it's hard for any of us to argue about that, to people who actually saw these things happen, you know? Right. No, and 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 I think that the the documentary certainly does a great job of explaining, you know, the the nuance of what that means, the way that they went through the process of getting it deemed uh, necessary to have an exorcism, and then the steps that they mm -hmm. went through. That this wasn't a this wasn't a rash decision, and this wasn't a rash approach that they took to it. Uh, just in, in in the few moments we have left, what were your thoughts on the documentary and the way that the story was presented? Well, I liked it. I really liked it. I thought visually it was great. There was no question about that. It really did a great job. And the funny thing that, that people don't, you know, here's a little inside baseball for you on this thing is that, you know, this thing was an entirely shot during the pandemic. So we, we, and what they did with it was really amazing considering that we really were working on a limited uh, way of doing things. We couldn't travel. We couldn't do it. So you know, putting that together was amazing. Now, there are a couple of bumps in the road in the documentary as far as sticking exactly to documentation. But, uh, you know, I understand it is a documentary and it is 
Well, I mean, it's called Shock Doc, so it's got to be a little bit dramatic, right? right so, yeah. <laughs> but overall, I really liked it. Uh, I enjoyed it. Well, I've I've watched it a couple of times. Um, I'm I'm out of town for an event this weekend, which is probably why the quality of this call is not the greatest, and I apologize for that. But no, it's fine. Uh, we watched it last night as kind of a you know with my commentary, and I I don't have anything bad to say about it. I really enjoyed it. I really did. And we had a good time watching it last night, and I'm here with a bunch of paranormal people. So they, you know, we're into it. So that, I think, says a lot because, as you know, a lot of paranormal TV, we, <laughs> a lot of us have some, some critiques, right? <laughs> you <laughs> know, but a lot of the things we see. So at least we couldn't, we couldn't complain about this too much. But, yeah, I liked it. I really did like it. And, and, and just in the final moment here before we let you go, because we are up against the news break, you know, yeah. you said there are no how-to books on exorcisms. I'm looking at The Devil Came to St. Louis on Google, and it lists yeah. it as a self-help book. Really? Yeah. <laughs> that's funny. <laughs> I don't know if I would list it as that. I would not self-help yeah. for an exorcism. <laughs> that's great. <laughs> uh, well, thank you so much for joining us. Uh, it's been great yeah, talking with you. I, I definitely want to have you come back sometime and talk we, more about... I will be back. We'll, yeah. we'll talk about this and also one of my favorite paranormal books of all time, Ghost by Gaslight. So, oh, really? Oh, great. Yeah, love. that's, I mean, not everybody's into the spiritualism stuff. A lot of people think it's, you know, old fashioned. They don't understand. That's how that stuff got started. That's why we do what we do because of all that history. So, yeah, that's great. Thanks, Tim. All right. Well, you be safe out there and we'll talk soon. All right, man. Take care. You as well. That is Troy Taylor. Check out his book, The Devil Came to St. Louis, the true story of the 1949 exorcism. Just one of the many, many books that he's written. I mean, he's got great, great books out there on a variety of different cases. You can't go wrong with any single one of them. Uh, and also, uh, check out the documentary on on um, Discovery+. Plus. I mean, it's like we've been saying for the past couple of weeks, you know, it's four ninety nine a month to get it uh, with commercials, six ninety nine to get a commercial free, but you can get a free seven day trial. So maybe you want to, you know, see this documentary and you're not sure if you want to stick with Discovery Plus. Sign up, get the free trial, watch the documentary, and then kind of mess around and see if there's other stuff you want there. But one thing that I have seen from people that have subscribed to it is even if they go kicking and screaming into the "I guess I'll pay for another streaming service" mentality, they've come back and said. Wow, this has a lot of the stuff that I like to watch all in one spot. So in terms of the library that it has, I mean, it really is a, a pretty impressive library. And they're adding more stuff to it. So uh, you can check that out again. Just download and uh, sign up for it, Discovery Plus, and you can see uh, the shock doc of the exorcism of Roland Doe. And our friend Jeff Belanger featured prominently in it as well. Uh, that's one of the cases that I think, um, you know, people... Like I said at the beginning, they hear little bits and pieces of it. They don't realize how in-depth and nuanced that story really is. And uh, they don't realize the fact that there is, you know, stuff that we didn't know. There's revelations in this documentary that you might have never heard. And I'm not going to ruin it for you. So check it out for yourself. But don't go away because we'll be back with more Spooky South Coast in just a moment. Are you intrigued by Paranormal Talk Radio? You love the new Paranormal Radio app from TalkStream Live. You'll find a great selection of talk shows covering UFOs, ghosts, strange phenomena, and much more. Download the Paranormal Radio app now and start listening to the very best in paranormal talk entertainment, the Paranormal Radio app, free in Google Play and the iOS App Store. 
the South Coast. Tim Weisberg here along with science advisor Matt Moniz talking about the paranormal. And uh, thanks again to Troy Taylor for joining us in our number one. As I said, it was great to finally have him on the air and uh, and hopefully we can get it going again. You know, we'll we'll have to do a pre-record sometime where it works for him. And then I always love the laughter that's in this song. So this track is from our friends at Under the Question. Uh, you can check them out on SoundCloud, but uh, this is um, such a great theme song. That's why I was so adamant about bringing it back to, to Spooky. I'm digging it. I mean, uh, I was when when they created that from for Midnight in the Desert. I was driving around like just listening to it on repeat. That's how much I liked it. Uh, but um, and of course, when I had to take it off Midnight Society because. We were going to use the rentals music exclusively. I was a little heartbroken, but I knew that we could bring it here. And so uh, kind of timed it perfectly with the 15th anniversary to bring it up. So we are talking, we were talking in the first hour uh, about plagiarism and the paranormal. We'll get back to that uh, coming up in just a few moments. But, you know, talking about the exorcism of Roland Doe, I was somebody that didn't believe in the idea of demonic possession. And I still don't know if I do. I still feel like a lot of it has to be in people's minds, but I've learned a lot over the years about how much the people who are the exorcists, I don't want to say just the priests because exorcists aren't always priests, uh, but the people who are conducting the exorcism rituals, they do a solid job a lot of times looking into just how... are they mentally ill? You know, they, they work on those factors first. Well, I've been party to a couple of exorcisms um, peripherally, and they are pretty scary, even if it is just a mental illness or something that's afflicting the person. Um, right, a person that yeah. thinks they're possessed is just as scary as a person that is possessed. possessed. You know? Yeah, and... Um, uh, another connection I have to a possession is my second wife, our ex-wife, uh, ha- had been possessed and had gone through an exorcism when she was younger. I mean, she was helped out by um, Father Malachi and uh, the Warrens had a hand in help getting her, you know, and John Zappas knows her well. Yeah, I, I have a lot of luck finding women that aren't <laughs> involved well, in one or another. So, I mean, I feel kind of bad for her. She defeated the demon only to end up with you. So. Yeah, well, which was worse. <laughs> <laughs> no, I mean, I don't mean to make light of it, but... No, she does. Well, yeah, well, <laughs> I mean, you have to. Being married to you is one of those situations where, like, if you can't laugh about it, you know? Yeah, yeah. Uh, but, but, no, she would tell me, and I've got to hear some of the recordings of what happened with her. And like I said, I've, I've been directly involved in, in people indirectly involved. So, yeah, it, it can really try a person and what it really can try is the family members of that person right you know that that's you know people keep thinking oh the poor person it's no it also takes it can be argued a bigger toll on the family members it it seems like most of the exorcism cases that you read about that you hear about that are you know true true exorcisms yeah uh and i and i use that term in a way where you know, the person believed that they were possessed by something. It wasn't a hoax or anything. 
uh, in those cases, the people usually have no recollection of what happened. Yeah. I know sometimes they do, but you know, a lot of the Parts. ones that you hear about, yeah. they, they don't. Yeah. So for them, it probably isn't as bad, you know, the physical recovery from it. Cause we see some of the, the physical damage that's done from it, but you know, it's, it's the people around them, as you were saying, that actually witness it all. Right. And it, it's one of those situations where, yeah, it probably sucks to go through it, but at the same time, it's got to be so much worse to be the person watching it and knowing there's nothing you can do about it. No. And, no. and like I said, talking to my ex's family that were there and it was like the hardest part is watching somebody that you love going to torment, whether it be from one thing or another. And in some of the, uh, like I said, other cases I got involved with and other videos and audio of that, what are called actual exorcisms, like I said, I looked into this heavily back in the uh, late 80s, early 90s. Uh, and some of the tapes I got to hear, uh, and it was just gut-wrenching to hear what these poor people were going through. And you can hear the family, like I said, the mothers or the husbands or, or whatever in the room with them. And, you know, the wailing that they're producing seeing their loved one in such pain. The so. the only person that I've seen, um, well, the only person that I've talked to directly that when I've talked to them about it has seemed, how, how can I put this in a way, you know, I, I think a lot of people that, that conduct those rituals, that conduct the the, whether it be the Catholic rites of exorcism or whether it be the the, the lay exorcisms that we see, um, I think well, a many different forms. Every religion has their own version. I, we I, should tell you something. Yeah, I mean, but I I also think that the the people who do them, a lot of them have to have a very pragmatic approach. Like they have to say that okay, I can't no. I can't emotionally invest myself in this. No, because that's what supposedly gives the demon, quote on air quotes here, a, a foothold into them, you know, to thwart whatever they're trying. But the other problem is now we have a new breed of, you know, demonologists, and I'm sure some of them are calling themselves exorcists, and you've got people that are just, you know, People that joined a paranormal group and said, I'll be the demonologist because somebody has to be, and that sounds cool. And, you know, now they're out there trying to conduct exorcisms. And those are, you know, because I see it, I see it all the time. Like uh, somebody will post a photo up on Facebook, finally got my exorcism kit in, you know, and, but I look at that and I say, that is not only dangerous on a spiritual level, assuming that, you know, there is a real demon uh, behind this there's stuff. There's a serious danger in a mental health right. level. And, yeah. and not only the mental health of, of the person that you're helping, yeah, but your yeah. own mental health, Correct. too. You know, because what happens if something starts happening? You know, okay, do I believe that Roland Doe levitated? Do I believe that there was levitation involved in, in other exorcisms where it's been talked about? Well, if you've got credible witnesses that are telling you that that's what happened... I'm, I'm going to let, let me just take that at face value for a moment, but then say, what if it wasn't a demonic force that was making that person levitate? What if it was something within themselves that was allowing well, them to levitate? There's plenty of uh, reports of, you know, spiritual levitation throughout history and, and current and 
as well as past records of, you know, various saints have been said to have levitated in the church and all kinds of, you know, Western uh, beliefs have people levitating and stuff like that. And in some of these videos that I was talking about, that I had a, a Roman Catholic priest that was very good friends with my family, and he shared with us early, early versions of uh, videotapes of real exorcisms. You know, yeah, as done I, by the church. And they definitely showed uh, somebody, uh, it, they were sitting in a chair, best way to describe it. They were essentially tied to a chair. And the chair lifted up off the ground. And I'm watching this on, you know, I'm 16 years old at that time, watching this video of this person, you know, levitating off the ground in a chair. And, uh, it was in, done in another language. I want to say Italian. Um, but, uh, yeah, that does happen well, in exorcism. So. I mean, I got involved in, in with this show in, in 2006. And not long after we started the show, you know, Keith Johnson invited us to take his course at, you yeah. know, South Coast Learning. And uh, so Matt Cost and I went over there and took the class. And at the end of the class... He starts showing us, you know, video of actual exorcisms that he's been involved in. And I looked at Matt and I was like, I don't know if this is anything that I want to get involved in. Like, maybe I'm second guessing jumping into the paranormal world here because, like... It's not pretty. Yeah, it doesn't matter. Like, I'm looking at this and I'm saying, I don't care if there's a real demon involved in this. That's still some scary stuff. Yeah. Like, one way or the other. So that's why, I mean, and you you can vouch for this. Oh, yeah. That, you know, for, for all these years... That we've been doing this every time you say, well, there might be, you know, a possible demonic case. I'm like, yep, yeah, well, you know, let me know how it goes mm -hmm. because I don't, I don't have a spiritual background. I don't have spiritual beliefs. And I think that in uh, the way that I feel about things, I think I would be more help, uh, more hurt than help in a situation like that. So I don't need to get involved in it. Well, as I've told you on a number of occasions, I, I prefer not to be involved with them. And there's a simple reason. And I learned this many years ago when I first started dealing with it and looking into it. They are very taxing cases. They drain you. And it's, I'm not just talking from a spiritual sense. Mm -hmm. It's just it takes a lot out of you to deal with what's going on. Like I said, the hurt, the pain, the, the all of the other things going on. It, unless you have the commitment to sit through it from start to beginning and you have the patience for all of it and you're fully accepting of what you're going to go through with this, it's not for the pain of heart. It's not for the fly-by-nighters. It's not for, you know, you know. The, the momentary Superman, I want to go do this because right. this is on my bucket it's list. It's not thing. for hobbyists. Yeah. 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 Uh, but also, I mean, just look at it like this uh, on, on just the, the smallest, most minute level. It's if you go to one of these and you get somebody thrashing around, just think about how much your physical exertion is going to take you to try to hold somebody down that's fighting against you for however long you do it for, you know? Um, yeah. Like I said, time, uh, talking about my uh, ex-wife's case. She was 90 pounds at the time, and she was throwing around 225-pound guys trying to hold her down. So, so, yeah. There's there's something to that, whether it be, you know, something demonic or something, you know, within her, but whatever. Yeah. Like, that's a, that's a strength that you have to be ready to go up against. 
And I'm sure that many, many, many people have tried that weren't ready for it and weren't able to do it. And if you ever find yourself in one of those situations, you know, reach out to us, Spooky Crew at SpookySouthCoast.com. We can put you in touch with Keith Johnson and other people who have a network of of folks that they trust and work with in that regard. And, and uh, you know, Carl and, and James Anito have started a new thing, Carl Johnson. By the way, you know, our, our, our best wishes go out to Carl. He's Adam Bly's contact. He was the only <clears throat> lay person that was approved by the Vatican here in the United States. But, but I just want to... Well, more than one. Send, yeah, no, send no, well so. wishes out to Carl. He's, yeah. he's battling COVID, so... Ah. Uh, but, uh, yeah, I'm in, and, you know... He'll be fine. The, as his we wish you well in strength. As his girlfriend said, the, the hardest thing is like everybody needs to stop bothering him because he just wants to talk to everybody. So True. That's, that's, that's his nature. That's Carl. Yeah. Yep. So <laughs> he'll be, uh, he'll be uh, up and ready to go, and, and, uh, and, and he'll be talking to everybody soon, I'm sure. Uh, so let's uh, take a call here. 508-996-0500 is the number. Good evening. You're on Spooky South Coast. Hello. What's shaking, player? Hey, What's going on, buddy? Why aren't you watching Blazing Saddles? I thought you were I watching. I am watching Blazing okay. Saddles right now. I'm watching it right now. They're fighting. They're fighting. In, in the, everybody's fighting in the middle of the town right now. It's like I was like, this, this is so. You guys should so be watching this. You guys could be watching it on on the YouTube if you'd like to. Well, you could do it like that. We're right a little. Tonight. We're a little busy right now. Mm. Oh, rats! But uh, mm-hmm. you, you, you know, you guys. Oh, go on. I was gonna say I got a little trivia for you. Okay. So, of course, you know, in Blazing Saddles, uh, yeah. you know, the, the running joke is, you know, Headley, Headley mm-hmm. Lamar. But did you know, did you know that yeah. Hedy, Hedy Lamar, did you know that she was, she invented one of the precursors of Wi-Fi? Yeah, and she also did um, stuff for, uh, for radio, uh, for, um, radio uh, shortwave radio for the missiles, you know, for the yep. torpedoes. And, and, and it's yeah. that stuff that she invented that's now... The basis of what we use as Wi-Fi in our homes. I think she was an alien. Possibly. She might have alien stuff, you know. No, but she had a PhD in physics, yeah. I think. That doesn't mean she's not an alien. Oh, okay. Yeah, that's true. There's, you know, Point taken. Alien. Did, you, did, did you hear what happened? I need to tell you guys this. Did you hear what happened to Tom Brady? No, what and happened? He was arrested t- tonight Who? for uh, Tom Brady. He was arrested, he was Who's arrested he? for the quarterback, former quarterback. He's, he's Tampa Bay Buccaneers quarterback. He, he was arrested tonight for for possession of twenty pounds of marijuana. I guess that's what you call. I guess that's what you call a Super Bowl. Yeah, okay. I was wondering where the punchline was on that. Thank you. Yes, that's the third time I did it. Last two seasons, last two years, didn't get it. Okay, this one's for the few. Now, uh, this gentleman that was on earlier, I heard the last little bit of it. Now, you know, I have my, I've had my, I know Mr. Doe himself. And you know that he was a pilot for major airlines when 9-11 happened. He was about to retire. They called him out of retirement to come back and finish flying because they wanted people they could trust. And, you know, that's something that deals with all about that. And I met him back, I want to say, 92, 93, something like that. And and it's like, we see, I talked to him, and he, he, was, he was so honest. You know, he talked about... Not remembering some of the things, but then he remembered this and that, and he gave me he gave me a picture I had. I was gonna put in my book that I've been working on for so long, but he told me as long as I don't say his real name in my book, it's all good. But you, you know, in the movie when you, he had the she had the letters on her stomach in the movie. Yeah, came up on the. You can see the letters on his stomach. He's looking towards the camera, and he looks so demonic. He looks possessed. And I tell you one thing: a lot of people when they're possessed, they know they're possessed. Or when they're being oppressed, 
They know it. And it's like they, a lot of people are like, oh, my, they know when it's going down. I've seen it, and, and it's so very clear. Like maybe friends, relatives that are close to them, they all see it too or feel it. That's one thing you could one thing you could about knowing someone that's possessed or or coming around someone that has that a demonic oppression on them, you can feel it. Not even knowing them, they could walk by and you could feel it. It's like um, it's like you're walking by like a like a big oven in the bakery, and you're right there, and the door is open wide open for you to climb in, and you can feel that heat. It's just like that, and it's something that you know after you feel it, something you'll never forget. And and it and it's so very real, so very real. And I just thought it would stop something that's like when you have when you have people that are trying to make money off of people that's going through this stuff. Like that's not good. That is terrible. You know, I guess everybody needs to get, get the bills paid. I feel them on that. But you don't sit and do that to people that are, that are looking for help and needing some help. That's like when um, a long time ago, back in the 90s, Linda Georgian from the Psychic Friends Network, she wanted me to, she said, I'll feature one of my top psychics. And I, I said, no, I don't want to do that. There's too many people out there really looking for help and needing somebody to give them the right guidance. And there's so many people out there that's working for your company or just period that, that don't know what they're talking about and giving people the wrong advice, let alone them finding out their own, to find out the hard way. So I think, like I said, I'm, if I'm going to make some money, I, don't mind, I, I can always use the money. But I'm, I've got, I think it's a gift from God I'm using. When I start using it to make money, it's a tool of the devil. That's how I go about it, keeping it, keeping it t- totally went on it. Well. I, I I'm, I'm going to let you get back to your uh, your blazing saddles there. Uh, how far into the movie are you now? An hour and a half. It, it's at it's almost over. It's like they're uh, you know it's like they're having the food fight right now. Okay, so so you're you're ready to hold out your hand, and stick out your tush. Okay, but it's been my tush has been stuck out. Don't tell anybody. <laughs> I don't want anybody to come creeping up on the brother like hey, oh six feet Android, get away from me. Uh, right. Okay, that's <laughs> out of that. Have a good have a good night, Lamone. Later, Playboy. Take it easy. Talk to you next week. All right, bye. Okay, ciao. (laughs) That's Lamone uh, checking in from Vegas. And uh, also, um, you know, yeah, he was telling me about that last night that, uh, you know, they were running Blazing Saddles unedited on Turner Classic movies tonight. Unedited? Well, Turner Classic, you know, they run them unedited. Um, But, yeah, it's... it's, it's, it's They can't make movies like that anymore. Yeah, I was going to say, it's a movie now that it's getting harder and harder to show it. But... What people don't realize, what a you know, a lot of the people who are probably going to watch that for the first time tonight and be like, "Oh, this is inappropriate." What they don't realize is that it's actually mocking the inappropriate. Yeah, it's it's yeah. it's it's it. They're on your side, you know. Mel Brooks is on your side. He's mocking the the situation um, because there's lines in there. Of course, we can't even repeat them on these airwaves yeah. anymore. But there's lines in there that are just like sheer genius and how much they expose people um so yeah it's something that everybody should watch especially for the time it was made in but that's that's why young frankenstein is my favorite mel brooks movie because it will always stand the test of time and and it's there's probably some stuff in there that's inappropriate but not a lot not that i can think of like paul brooker well that's just german for glue (laughs) there's nothing wrong with that and and of course cloris leachman passing away uh last week so but um my my favorite, one of the most underappreciated lines in Young Frankenstein is <laughs> when Gene Wilder pulls up into the train station and he sees the shoe shine boy and he says, Pardon me, boy, is this the Transylvania station? 
And the kid says, yeah, yeah, track 29, right. would you like a shine? You know, playing on the song. Yeah. And then Gene Wilder just looks at him and says, no thanks. <laughs> like, just the way he delivers that is is perfect. Uh, that and, and and one of the other underappreciated lines um, is when, uh, when Gene Wilder says to uh, Marty Feldman, he says, Igor, help me with the bags. And he says, and the, you know, the two women are there, yeah. and he says, okay, I'll take the blonde, the blonde you take the one on the turban. Like, yeah. those are two of the most subtle lines that I didn't always get when I was a kid. But now that I'm an adult, I, I get them so much more. And I didn't, I did not know uh, the Flau, uh, Frau Blucher line. I didn't know why the horse's winning was so funny until I was in, I think, 10th grade when uh, we were watching it during drama club rehearsals at Wareham High, you know, because I was in the AV club and I would, I had a little, had a little side gig going where I was bootlegging videotapes in the AV room. Ah. And uh, so I had made a bootleg of, uh, of, of Young Frankenstein. We were watching it on the big screen in the high school auditorium. And uh, Mrs. Furtado, the music teacher at the middle school was our, our drama advisor for the high school. And uh, she was the one, you know, she, was letting us watch it and she was she's the one that explained to me that that's why the horse is winning i was like i had no idea my whole life that makes it so much funnier now yeah so you know and i actually had the opportunity um a few weeks back to interview max brooks who is the son of mel brooks yep. okay. uh, about his book about it's a fictional book but it's about sasquatch uh it is called the evolution a first-hand account of the rainier sasquatch massacre and uh, and I recommend it. It's a it's it's a fictional book about a Bigfoot attack, but it is it's an allegory. Some say it's an allegory for COVID nineteen, but he wrote it really before COVID nineteen. But it's an allegory for you know how society would stand up to some kind of a threat like that. So it's almost like the stand if people weren't able to come together and make the stand. Okay. So by the way. If, if you haven't been watching that on CBS All Access, um, I give it, I give it, if I have to go with the, the, the Siskel and Ebert rating system, I give it one and three quarters thumbs up. It's pretty, pretty well done. Um, it was nice to have it play out a little bit longer than the ABC, you know, miniseries did. But at the same time, I still want more out of it. I, you know, I would have liked a nice 20 episode, you know, uh, telling of it, but it's, it's not terrible. And, um, well, seasons used to be what? 26 episodes back in the day now, 20, what, what 22 to season? 26. Yeah. What is this season now? I've seen different as well, little as 10. Well, that's the thing is, so what happened was seasons were always 22 to 26 weeks because yeah. what that did is that allowed them to have a few weeks off during the run for holidays and that allowed them to be able to Happier do to film other episodes. Yeah. And, but it also allowed them to have summer reruns because yeah. that was a huge thing. People forget about that. You needed those summer reruns because that's what got people hooked onto a show. So for example, lost when lost came out in season one, it didn't get a lot of people hooked on it in that first run of the season a lot of people found it in the summer reruns, uh, you, you know, and that's, uh, I was the same way. I started watching it on the reruns. Um, so like summer reruns were a good way to hook people after the buzz had already been there for a show. And the other part of it was 
that they were, you know, the eye is always towards syndication. And you can't syndicate a show through the old syndication model until you have 90 episodes. Because what you need to have is you need to have three months of being able to air Monday through Friday before you get into repeats. Because otherwise, you know, if you only have 30 episodes, then you're just repeating every month. And so people don't want that for syndication. So I think it was 90 episodes was like the magic number you had to get to, 90 or 95 for syndication. Or, you know, 100 yeah. was like guaranteed yeah. syndication. And so that was a big, big money-making model for a long time. So the cable proved that you didn't have to have that number of episodes for syndication because, you know, TBS, um, USA, there were networks like that, sci-fi, that would take programs and not have to run them Monday through Friday. They'd run them once a week. So you could syndicate a show that had less episodes. Then when you got into streaming services, you know, they needed even less than that because people would just binge watch them anyway. So it didn't matter how many you had. The thing that started to change things and actually, you know, what actually changed everything was the Sopranos because the Sopranos redefined the way that people would come and watch television. So they would have 10 or 12 episodes in a season. I think, I think the most they had in a season might've been 18. Don't quote me on that, but they had, you know, these short seasons and they could get away with having it premiere in say January and people watch it for, you know, four months and then it goes away. And then they come back and they get it in four months. Now, the downside is if you were subscribing to HBO just to watch The Sopranos and you didn't care about anything else, they would cancel and then sign up again when The Sopranos came back. But, you know, HBO mitigated that by introducing new shows that they thought would hook people in. So when they had people tuning into The Sopranos, then they tried to keep those people subscribed by giving them six feet under. And then, you know, and then Deadwood comes and all these other programs. So they just kept trying to bring you back um, and keep you subscribed. And I think it was really, I think it was really um, until Game of Thrones ended that they didn't see a real dip from season to season that mattered. You know, Game of Thrones, they saw a big drop in subscriptions, but that's to be expected because they didn't really come out with a lot of strong programming because I think even then they knew that they were gearing up for HBO Max. The So that the Sopranos redefined TV, and I know this isn't paranormal, but I, I, I'm a geek about this stuff, so I like having any chance to talk about it. Okay. So the, the because now they said you don't need to have a 26, 22-episode season to, to be a success. So then you started to see more of these limited-run um series on broadcast television. So you got shows like Heroes, which would come on for three months and then go away. Uh, other limited series that would do that on TV. And then you would have to wait maybe a year, as much as a year for them to come back. And in some cases you would have to wait more than a year, especially HBO. HBO has been notorious for, you know, giving the creators the time that they want to create the show. So it might not come back you know, if it debuts in September, it might not be the new season the following following September. Uh, look at Curb Your Enthusiasm. I think it went three years before there was a new season, you know, because Larry David just makes new episodes when he's inspired to make new episodes, which, you know, I'm happy with because I love them. So whenever I can get them, I'm happy to get them. I just, it's interesting because I see, you know, 
some some shows. You know, I'll give you a good example. I I don't watch much. We'll call it network television or stuff that would have any type of real series to them. There's only one show that I would say I would follow regularly, and that would be The Walking Dead. And those those are weird seasons. They're split, right? And it's, I know a lot of sh- shows are like that. So is it? H- how do I determine what a season is anymore? So yeah, I mean, I know with The Walking Dead, they look at it as the two halves are one yeah, season. season. Yeah. Um, but other shows, it's like, no, we gave you eight episodes. Now come back for another eight episodes of another season. And so it, it it's really now it's being built for the binge. Even if it airs on broadcast, it is being built for future binge watching. So that's just the nature of, of where we're going with our viewing habits. And I'm all for it because there's nothing worse than waiting. I've told this story before. You know, I loved Quantum Leap. And I watched it every week religiously. Yep. And the night of the Oswald Leap, which I believe was the season three uh, premiere, I wanted to be in front of that TV. I did not want to miss a single moment of that. And I ended up watching part of it at the Ann and Hope in Dartmouth in the electronic section on the TV in there. Because I, I had to see it as it was happening. I was taping it at home, but I had to see it as it was happening. So that's... That's gone. There is no more appointment TV anymore. Mm. You know, the paranormal shows that are on Discovery Plus, part of what's a problem is that they were watching the the premieres on Discovery and Travel and all those networks, and they were live tweeting with people. So there was a reason to kind of be there watching it live and immediacy to it. And now with the app, you know, that's that's been taken away. So they, they've been scheduling their own things to do when the new episodes drop anyway, but it's not the same. So we're getting away from, you know, we're never going to have 70% of the country tuning into the season finale of MASH ever again. We're going to get a lot of people watching the Super Bowl tomorrow. I actually did tune into it. But that was, you know, the biggest thing that anybody ever got together to watch all at the same time. And non-sporting event. And I think it even drew yeah. more numbers than, than any Super Bowl has. I'd have to double check that. But that is never going to happen again. I think the last really big finale like that was Friends. Because... I also thought The Sopranos, which you mentioned, there was another larger one. No, but that didn't really have... There was never a lot of people watching The Sopranos on a Sunday Night Live. Okay. So because of the way that HBO built the show, and, and a lot of people back then were binging before they even knew what that term meant. So for me, I didn't watch The Sopranos when it came out. And I had HBO, but I didn't watch it. I discovered it after season one had debuted and after it had wrapped up. And then I rented it on video cassette or DVD or whatever. And I was watching the whole season. And then I remember, you know, Jen and I were dating at the time. And when the season two premiere started, like we made a big Italian night. You know, we got a bunch of Italian food and Italian, we got cannoli and everything. Made a big Italian night out of it, but leave the gun, take the cannoli. <laughs> but those, but those things, those things don't happen anymore. You know, you don't have people, you know, all getting together to do to do that anymore. So, 
Uh, 508-996-0500 is the number if you'd like to call in and chime in. It doesn't just have to be on this, but I just you know went off on a, a TV soapbox because I'm, I'm, a, I'm a frustrated TV writer. That's what I always wanted to be. Well, you have written for some of the paranormal programs. No, I mean about TV. Oh. Like, I, I, I always wanted to be <laughs> the guy. There's always that column in the newspaper called Tune In Tonight yep. where they tell you like what to expect on the episodes. I always wanted to be that person. Because like, you get to see TV before anybody else does. That's awesome. And I'm not going to lie to you. I still geek out a little bit when I get sent screeners for things. And I'm like, oh, I get to see this first. I feel special. It's like, yeah, no, we send it to you today. It drops tomorrow. I know, but still, yeah. it feels special. Good evening. You're on Spooky South Coast. Hello. Hey, how are you doing? Good. Sorry for the wait. How are you? Oh, no, not bad. Not bad. Uh, this is Vincent from Oklahoma City. Uh, so I was actually going to chime in about what you said about why our seasons are so much smaller than they are or more compact. I honestly think it's the advent of watching TV on the internet because now we can watch stuff from all over the world, like in Europe. All their seasons are like nine episode seasons for the most part, and they're very short and uh, seasons and very short runs of a TV show, three or four uh, seasons, and it's done. And I think we're also hiring a lot of actors from over that are used to working in that that way and so they want to move on to a different project like almost immediately right so i think that's in my opinion i think that's partly to to, to blame we, or you know i don't want to say blame but contributes to that i mean i don't know what you think about that but it's kind of where i'm at with that i have noticed that like when i started watching Whitechapel, it was the first show i saw from europe i guess that was like oh this is really good and it's short it gets the story across and there's an end point to it. There's no more after season two or three. Right. And th and there's no, when you have a setup like that, there's no filler. You know, you don't have to yeah. have episodes where it's like, uh, on this episode, they give you the backstory of a character you don't really care about. Or on this episode, you know, you have um, a backdoor pilot for a spinoff series. Like, that stuff doesn't happen anymore. Yeah. It doesn't break out into a musical episode out of nowhere. <laughs> right. <laughs> but, and the other advantage of what you're talking about, too, is... Now you can get actors for things that you might not have been able to before. So exactly. you can get, you know, like say, just as an example, you know, they wanted to do Married with Children reboots over the years, but they couldn't because Ed O'Neill was locked into that uh, Modern Family contract. But now mm -hmm. you could do, you know, now the way that shows are structured, somebody can go and film eight episodes of something and then go and film, you know, their other eight episodes of their other series, and it's not that big of a deal. There's an actress named, um, uh, I think it's uh, I think it's pronounced Marin, Ireland, and she was on, um, um, what's that show on Netflix about the superhero kids? Uh, oh, uh, I know what you're talking about. I'm blanking, Umbrella Academy. Uh, so yes. so okay. she's on Umbrella Academy on Netflix, and she's on uh, a great show on Amazon Prime called Sneaky Pete that not enough people watch. And, um, you know, so you can be on all these different programs because, you know, you're filming eight here, eight here, eight here. So instead of doing one, you know, 20-something episode season, you're able to be in three different series. Exactly. And I think it's beneficial to the consumer of the television program and the actor. They get to get different, get to work out in different areas. And, the, you know, we as consumers can see it 
and, and, and enjoy these shows and our favorite actors in multiple roles. And, and another advantage for them, too, is that's now triple the royalties for the work that you did in a year as opposed to if you had just been true. on one, one series, you know? That's totally true. So... Now the the only downside is is uh, for for the consumer it can be, you know there, there's there's a lot of options to watch now. There's more shows than I have time for. Yeah, that's another problem. My wife and I have talked about. We're like, okay, we have to commit to only a few things, or else our life is TV, and that's it. I mean, it's the only thing that I do when I have downtime, and I you know I, that's just what I like to do. But it's, I just sit there and I look at stuff in my DVR or stuff in my, you know, streaming queue. And I'm like, well, not getting to that for another week now. And you, know, <laughs> you just, you feel bad about it because you want to be part of the conversation when people are buzzing about things, you know? Exactly. I mean, uh, you know, and it kind of goes into the topic of those streaming, show, streaming channels. I'm just like, I want to subscribe to them all, but you got to pull back a little bit. Right. All right. You got to decide what your what your limit is. So I look at it like this: if your cable bill is two hundred and fifty bucks a month, which you know I have an everything package with high end internet, so I'm paying yeah. say two hundred fifty bucks a month. So if I take out whatever my internet is off the top, so say that's seventy or eighty bucks, you know, then what I have left, that's what I have left to divide up among streaming services. If I was to cut exactly. the cord, you know, and then it's it's nice if you can come down under that, but at least you would have more control over what it is that you're watching. And that's true. Like, it wasn't, I didn't have cable, unless just the internet, till 2011. And then I started getting on a Netflix, Hulu, Disney Plus now, now YouTube TV, and it's, are, yeah. Are you a, a WandaVision watcher? So... It's on my list because I, I follow all the Marvel stuff. I just go back into I haven't had a chance to watch it yet. So that is on my list. In fact, I'm probably going to binge it tomorrow um, and, and get caught up. I mean, I stay away from spoilers because I, I don't even want to say anything, but there was... There, I, I had to hide your post from yeah. earlier. Well, I didn't. I, I specifically said no spoilers, but um, yeah. it, it, it means so much that like... I, I I can't imagine it's going to stay under wraps for too long, you know. Yeah. So you want to you want to make sure you get it. Not not that it would really ruin it, but it's just it's it's a cool thing. Yeah, yeah, totally. It's like you know, all these things that like the whole Mandalorian, the, the final episode of that. I stayed. I tried to stay away from everything. It's like watch that night with my kids, and that even that was hard. Twelve hours later. Right. I've been trying not to tell Moniz about that because I told him he needs to watch it as a Star Wars fan, but, you know, he's just like, oh, I'll get around to it. Uh, no, I'll eventually get to, to it. And then I'm going to spoil it for you before you get to it, so. Spoilers don't bother me because I'm going to be seeing it anyway, so. Oh, also no. because, you know, he'll he'll forget anyway by then. He's old. Yeah. <laughs> a lot of drugs in the 70s and 80s. and Well, not the 70s. Oh, you're a kid. But in the 80s. There was hey, a decade called the right? 80s, wasn't there? It, there, yeah, was, there I, were, I'll show you some pictures later. Okay. All right. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, thank you for uh, thanks for checking in, and, and, and thanks for uh, offering some, some insight, too. I mean, I, I know it's not paranormal, but I think it's interesting to talk about, you know? Now, I love what we did. The, you know, you guys diverge on these things. That's what I always, like, missed about, like, you know, the older episodes. You know, it was kind of like this, the potpourri kind of thing, and then... And I love that kind of stuff mixed in. 
I love the paranormal topics, obviously. That's why I'm here. But I also love delving into this other stuff, too. Yeah. I mean, I, I just like to have any good, fun, interesting conversation. Yes. All right. Well, uh, you know, let me know what you think about WandaVision after you watch it. I will. I will. Thanks. All right. Take care. Have a good night. You too. And, uh, and again, if you want to call in, 508-996-0500. Moni's, uh, I mean, I, I think I could probably ruin The Mandalorian for the audience at this point, but I won't do it. But I will tell you off the air because it might actually, you know what, I'm not going to tell. Have you heard at all about what happens in the, the season finale? I barely know that there's a thing called The Mandalorian. Okay. <laughs> okay. It's like when, sport, and this is something that I used to argue about with, um, Wes and Nick, when they used to come in and do the Change My Mind show, which they still do. You can check that show out uh, online. But when they were coming here and doing it and I was producing the video for them, you know, that was the very first episode. Nick doesn't want spoilers. Wes wants spoilers. Wes intentionally goes and tries to read spoilers because he wants to know what's going to happen in a movie before he goes to see it. And okay. I'm like, well, that is, I just don't get that. I don't understand that at all. Why would you want to have the that ride ruined for you? He's like, because I feel like if I know what's going to happen, it makes it easier for me to follow along what's going on. It doesn't ruin how they get there for me. You know, I, I can know the destination and still enjoy the journey. But for me, I can't have any spoilers whatsoever. I mean, I get I angry. know what the basic premise of The Mandalorian is. It, it's a bounty hunter type of thing. You know, similar, well, as far as I understand, Boba Fett wasn't actually a Mandalorian, but he wore Mandalorian armor. Um, it's set in a time period just after the Clone Wars. No, and, it's uh, between Return of the Jedi, Jedi and, and, and uh, um, okay, uh, uh, The Force Awakens. Okay. Yeah. And there's probably other stuff in between there that I just don't know about because I'm not that deep into it. But, but yeah, that's the basic premise all and, and, you know, and there's a being of yoda's race that uh this mandalorian is supposed to be w overwatching or doing something with you know that's about all i really know you will love it not just because it's star wars you will love it because it's star wars uh, okay like, is it star wars or is this woke bullshit crap that's done by disney well no and uh it's more it's more of the original feel, but it's not necessarily like any... It's like a Western. Okay. So it's like... Are we talking Firefly type of... No, it's genre? like Clint Eastwood. Like it's, like it's like Clint Eastwood on Tatooine kind of thing. So, so you have... Okay. You know, like... In, like in, Outlaw Josie Wales in Space? Um, it's, it's very much, it's very much a, well, it is, I mean, it, it's, it's built on the Western structure for sure. Okay. But it's very much like, it's a, it's a side trek from all the bigger things that are going on, but the bigger thing, you know, within the galaxy, but the bigger things are still working their way into the episode. Okay. So it still has a lot of the Star Wars. It, some of the episodes are very much like, you know, the X-Files monster of the week where it's, it doesn't necessarily fit into the bigger narrative, but there's yeah. a cool story. I, I, I get where you're going. I get where you're going. But then the second season, they really focused on connecting them all more. Um, but I, I think you'll enjoy it on for a multitude of reasons, but mainly because it, it, 
first of all, from what I understand, most of the effects are done practically. So mm. it's not a lot of CGI stuff. And then also, like, they've, it's just, they've got better people running it than we're running the new movies. Okay. So, you know, John Favreau. I know the name. Yeah. He's an actor, but he's also a director. And uh, they put him in charge. He directed Iron Man. Yeah. Okay. Because, yeah. you know, he's he's the, the heavy set guy that's in a lot of, what was he in? I think he was in old school and he was in um, Swingers. And I think he was in old school. I don't remember. But he was, you know, making the move into, into directing. And they gave him Iron Man because they weren't sure if it was going to be a success or not. So they're like, here, give it to John Favreau because whatever. And he turned it into a big hit. And so then he had a, a part in building the, the MCU. And then so they brought him in for The Mandalorian with uh, Dave Filoni, who was running the Clone Wars TV show. And, like, they brought... As much as, like, J.J. Abrams was like, oh, I'm a big Star Wars fan. I'm going to bring it back to old Star Wars. Like, they did it far better than, than he did. I, and I like what he did with Star Trek. So... Yeah, he did very good with that. Um, I just don't know if he had it in him to do both. Gotcha. So, all that that being said, I did like the Force Awakens, but it was it was much a very much a rip off of the first movie. Mm. Some say homage. I say <laughs> copy. Good evening. You're next on Spooky South Coast. Hello, how are you? Hey, it's John New Bedford. How's it going? Good. How are you? Um, okay. First of all, as a lifelong Star Trek fan, I will say, do not mention those two initials to me ever. those movies were basically his audition to do star wars um but that being said uh matt um the mandalorian is the best star wars since the original trilogy okay i'll take your word on it john okay (laughs) i would i would almost say like if i had to rank the star wars i would say it's like empire it's a new hope it's Mandalorian, yep. and then you know Return of the Jedi. For me, I know yeah. other people don't like Return of the Jedi as much as I do, but I, I would agree with that. I would agree with that. So I, it, I, might, I, might, I might put I might put uh, New Hope first, just because it was the first, um, and then Empire. Stick the Mandalorian in there, then Jedi. Um, but yeah, it's it's really well done. And I don't know if you watch the cartoons, Matt, but um, there's a lot of no. a lot of a lot of char- Okay, there's a lot of characters that come in from the cartooniverse. That um, you don't need to have watched them, but if you if you did watch the cartoons and it's like it's like oh that's awesome you know it's like that much that much better. It's always cool when a show brings in a character and you're like oh I wasn't expecting that character to come into this you know. Yeah, um, getting back to the episodes thing, I, I was I was an earlier caller mentioned it. I was gonna I was gonna say that that probably has come from the BBC because a lot of uh, a lot of British shows I watch. Mm-hmm. There's six or eight episode seasons, um, and then and then you're done. And and they don't even call them seasons; they call yeah, them series. series. Yeah, yeah, yeah. series. Yeah, because they don't they don't always know that they're coming back, so they just kind of build them. They have no problem with making something that's you know eight episodes, and that's all you ever see. Yep. And if you want, and of course, if you watch the British uh, Sherlock with uh, uh, Benedict Cumberbatch, yeah, that guy. <laughs> I'm going back to the old Basil Rathbones. And, yeah. Well, yeah. Not quite that well, old, no. Okay. Well, no, well, yeah, no, the Sherlock, they did, it was three episodes, and I think there were two hours each or something, and that and you got one of those every three years. So it took them nine years to do three series of of that show. 
I, I mean, it, it's just a, it's a different way of doing it, but it's I, I think that it works. You know, I think you can give people TV however you want to give it to them these days. But it's funny. If you look at the BBC, they have the longest running series on television that is well known for having many episodes per season. And that being Doctor Who. Yeah, yeah. Well, not not the longest continuously running because it took some some years off. Well, but yeah, but you understand. We're going back to 63 in terms of, you know, when it and, and, and the other. But it's brilliantly made in a way where they can keep refreshing it right you know every every couple of seasons yeah my my problem is i i'm a binge watcher so i'll sit down i'll watch 10 hours of something on netflix and then like oh i gotta wait another year right i do this i do the same thing i did that with uh with cobra kai i watched the entire series in one the the entire season in one sitting I watched. Yep, I watched the third the the latest season in one sitting and i was like no it can't be it was only like Six or eight episodes. It was like that can't no, be it, it. it. It was ten. It was 10? <laughs> you, okay. Yeah, it was ten. But you just it. You were like me. It just flew by. I yeah. watched. I watched like the first six and said I better go to sleep because it was. You know, I watched it as soon as it dropped, yeah. and then yeah. uh, I had to go to sleep for a little while. And then I got up and I finished it. Now, yeah, you're right. We're stuck waiting. Although, from what I understand, I've heard rumors that um, they're trying to get out there and film it now. Yeah, and that the next season might come before the end of this year. Yeah, because the way they the way they left it, it was it wasn't like a hard end. Like that could have been a mid season ending. The way they ended, it didn't. Uh, I don't know. They didn't wrap everything up. I don't think. Well, and it's gonna it's gonna lead to, you know, one of my favorite characters coming into the next season. So, I don't I don't know if you saw if, if you realized what they were setting it up for. Oh, um, who the I, who the big bad guy will probably be in the next oh, season? Oh yeah 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 yeah. So I'm I'm pretty excited for that. Mo- Moniz is not a Karate Kid guy, so like he doesn't he doesn't know what we're talking about. No, I keep yeah. hearing about Cobra Kai, but you know people uh, uh, talking the, about it. It's watch a good the Mandalorian. Yeah, <laughs> yeah I'll go. start that with that. Seems first. more my yeah. speed. All right, well, John, thanks for checking in. Have a good night. Yeah, thanks, good John. Night. All right, that'll do it for tonight. We are out of time. Until next week, everybody out there, we want you all to, of course, stay spooktacular. <laughs>